the digital revolution no longer needs any support or subsidy from government, from the state. On the contrary, it's matured to the point where it is attacking the authority of the state at multiple levels and along multiple dimensions and even undermining the integrity of the political process on which ultimately the authority of the state rests. That was the voice of Bill Janeway, a storied venture capitalist and economist. And I am Azim Azar, your host on the Exponential View podcast. Welcome to the next episode of our season, where we're exploring the political economy of technology. As you heard, Bill doesn't hold back his views on how the digital economy has become imbalanced. Power seems to have accreted some of the dominant players, possibly at the expense of the very institutions that allowed them to form. In this discussion, Bill and I dig deep into what he calls the three-player game, the relationship between founders, investors and the state. What went right, what has gone wrong and how we need to fix it. This conversation is enlightening, informative and challenging, but unfortunately it was recorded over a long-distance phone line, so at times the sound quality isn't where I would like it to be. But you know, stick with us, I'm sure you'll find it worthwhile. And now, over to my conversation with Bill. Good morning, Bill. It's great to have you. Good morning, Azim. It's delightful to join you. Now, the one downside of our podcast today is that you're not sitting in the same room as me. I'm in London. Where do I find you today? Well, I am in a very special place. I'm in the on the down east coast of Maine, beyond Penobscot Bay, across from Bar Harbor, in an old-fashioned summer community which has uh, four tennis courts, a wharf, a lovely public library, and an aggressively non-denominational chapel, and no clubs. Perfect place to read, write, and think. And that's where I'm spending the summer. It, it sounds like you have found a place which is about as far away from uh, digital distractions uh, as it, it could be. Is that a fair assessment? Well, you know, in fact, um, over the course of the 40 years that my wife and I have been coming here in the summer, we can track the entire progress of digital communications with precision. Because <laughs> when we first arrived, we had uh, the second smallest post office in North America, and the uh, phone lines were four-way party line telephones. Over the years, we saw uh, cordless phones come in, uh, FedEx come to the local airport. Then uh, one day I was out running and I noticed there were these thick cables uh, between the telephone poles. And, oh, my God, cable TV came. And then eventually came broadband Internet as well as FedEx to the door. So I'm afraid that we are connected. But the trade off is we get to stay here longer because we are connected. Uh, it's an amazing that you've been able to track that uh, those developments over the four decade that four decade period. That that sort of coincides with your career as a as a venture capitalist as well. I, I guess I was fascinated that you described yourself as an academic who took an extended sabbatical uh, from from academia. Could you just say something a little bit about your your sort of uh, founding story? Sure. So. I, um, I graduated from Princeton University in 1965 and had the enormous good fortune to win a Marshall Scholarship, uh, which I took to Cambridge University because as an undergraduate, I had been taken with the vision of John Maynard Keynes. And I had the uh, second privilege at Cambridge over the course of four years of uh, writing a PhD thesis for Richard Kahn, arguably Keynes's number one student, who was the, the author of The Multiplier, most notably. And as I look back across the Atlantic, uh, vintage 1970, uh, economics in the United States had taken the turn that was determinative uh, over the next long generation. New Cambridge, MIT, Paul Samuelson and Bob Solo, great economists, but had launched the the discipline and the direction, which assumed a sort of rational omniscience, which was the absolute opposite of 
the core of Keynes's understanding of how people incapable of knowing the full consequences of their actions nonetheless have to take decisions uh, that will often uh, produce conflict, contestation, and market failure. So in any case, I, I decided to um, experiment outside of the academy and discovered my my path towards what was just beginning to be known as venture capital during the course of the 1970s when I joined an old-fashioned, that word again, a specialist investment firm in New York uh, that was focused on the science-based industries. And, and that's where I discovered computers. I discovered the potential of computers. And the next 25 years from through the great dot-com Internet bubble were consumed with uh, total immersion in the emerging world of information technology, distributed computing, and eventually uh, the Internet as an environment for economic life, not just for uh, targeted uh, communication. Um, mm. And then um, I, I completed the cycle uh, in 2006 when I retired as vice chairman of Warburg Pincus, where, which I had joined in 1988, um, and returned to Cambridge with my wife as a kind of experiment in withdrawal and then the global financial crisis of 2008 made economics a really interesting subject again. And so I'm now I'm, I'm, I'm back uh, in the economics faculty of Cambridge 50 years later. It, it's an amazing uh, it's an amazing journey. And, and within that, I think we see the, uh, the sort of intellectual antecedents of the book that you have uh, recently published, a second edition of, where you look at this trifecta of, uh, the mission-driven state, which is, I guess, a kind of Keynesian idea, um, financial speculation and, and venture investing uh, and the market economy. And you take a look at those three things. And, of course, you, you also talked a little bit about Bob Solo and that uh, that consensus. Um, you also have a hard look at uh, the rational expectations and efficient market hypothesis. And I think these are some of the things that I'd love to cover off over the next uh, the, the, the next minute. But, but before we, we get there, I'd love to just um, drill a little bit into uh, your experience as, uh, as a venture capitalist. I mean, I think you're best associated with two quite fundamental companies, uh, Nuance, the voice recognition company, and I think it's BEA Systems, uh, which is a sort of an application uh, platform. Uh, it, in your time as a, as a venture capitalist, what, what, what did you notice about um, what made technologies and teams be the sorts of things that you wanted to back and support? Well, I had um, uh, a kind of uh, epiphany first uh, in the late 1970s. Um, it's not much remembered now, but once upon a time, uh, the exploration of uh, the world economy as a complex system had been initiated at, at MIT by extraordinary men uh, and an extraordinary team uh, who unfortunately produced a fiasco called the Limited Growth uh, Project of the Club of Rome. And they, they had attempted to model the world economy without a price system. And when this was pointed out, the group dissolved, but some of the youngsters, the young guys, were kind of refugees from MIT economics and from MIT uh, engineering, but they set out to build a bottom-up set of models of the economy, which I stumbled on in the aftermath of the first oil crisis when the conventional economic forecasting models had failed. This was when I was living a kind of hybrid life between economics and technology. And, and when I saw what they were doing, the simulation models they were building, uh, a very large penny dropped. And I realized that computers were not just flexible typewriters or, or uh, faster accounting machines, that they could be used to model and explore systems too complex to analyze exhaustively in an abstract way. That led me into real engagement with what was then the frontier of computing, and in particular, uh, an extraordinary place that many people have heard of, of course, called Xerox Park. Mm -hmm. And I, I got to know John Seeley Brown 
even before he became director of the park. And that was really an opportunity to not just envision, but to play with the future that was not yet ready to be commercially implemented. Uh, PCs with, well, they weren't PCs, they were very powerful computers with custom uh, processors, but that operated the way we now take for granted with uh, graphical user interfaces and mice, but that also were networked together and networked to specialist uh, computers that perform uh, uh, aspects of the system, database, uh, al- algorithmic, intensive graphics, all that stuff that over the next 20 years uh, became the new architecture that displaced the old centralized, proprietary, vertically integrated, uh, closed systems produced by the giants of the industry, such as IBM and digital equipment. So I got in very early, by 1980, in what was beginning to smell like uh, a world-changing, economy-changing, technological transformation. And along the way, I discovered, it was impressed upon me by reality, that what I was up to and what my peers were up to in the venture capital world and the entrepreneurs that we were all backing were up to, was was dancing on a platform that had been constructed by the United States government. In In the decades after World War II, the U.S. Defense Department, even before DARPA was established in response to Sputnik in 1957, uh, the Defense Department had funded uh, upstream research across the entire array of components from silicon to software that came to combine to create the digital revolution. But also, and this is often missed, really important role was that the Defense Department or agencies of it were early customers for the output of that research that was not by any means ready for commercial prime time. So they pulled the vendors, the Intels, uh, for example, uh, the Texas Instruments, down the learning curve to low-cost, reliable production that became capable of the extraordinary proliferation of computing, the democratization of computing uh, from the 1980s on through the PC revolution and onto the Internet. So that history was, was something I really lived and came to grips with as a as a practitioner, as a working venture capitalist, trying to understand the context uh, which had enabled me and the people uh, I was both competing with and collaborating with uh, to develop this new industry. That that's fascinating. So, in, just to summarize what what I what I understood from that, this is really the the first leg of your of your thesis in your book, which is that the the state. Uh, and state funding plays a key role as being an enabler in uh, in these very deep innovations that we certainly saw in the period of the mid 70s through to the uh, perhaps the early 90s. And exactly right. Yeah, and 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 what I'm surprised to hear from you is that you had noticed that and you were kind of clearly aware of that, and people around you uh, were aware of that narrative. Uh, as you were interacting um, in those in those early days, was it as, as really as sort of proximate and clear that you could draw the line between something that DARPA might have been doing and some great innovation that you were you were backing? Well, certainly uh, the the most obvious and transformational of all was DARPA's initiation of the internet. It was originally called ARPANET, mm-hmm. um, and that uh, was an experiment that. The Defense Department had enough uh, extraordinary. Actually, I have to pause for a moment just to say that uh, the history of DARPA uh, represents a really extraordinary demonstration of creative entrepreneurship in the public sector that in turn led to the transformation of the private sector. You know, in in, in 1982, uh, when he became president, Ronald Reagan notoriously said, uh, government isn't the solution. Government is the problem. But mm-hmm. believe me, all of the pioneers of the Internet and uh, for good or ill, uh, the applications of the Internet, uh, none of those pioneers would have agreed 
with President Reagan. On the contrary, the government was their collaborative, constructive, supportive partner in exploring the the frontier of the digital technology. Yeah, but, you know, when I when I think about what I hear coming out of uh, government, and I, I mean the, the U.S. and certainly the U.S. even pre-Trump. Uh, and, and in the UK and the way they think about their role uh, in the innovation ecosystem, I still feel that they are slightly stinging from Reagan's rebuke and it prevents them from being as uh, bullish or, or optimistic. And I find it quite curious that one of the one of the phrases that the YouTube videos that's often used by investors and founders to motivate their teams is Kennedy's speech where he says, we choose to go to the moon not because it's easy. We choose to go because it is hard. Uh, and he was, of course, a government guy as well. And something happened <coughs> in the period where we did a took a volte face on what we thought the capabilities of the state in this arena might be. Well, you know, I, I think we're going to get to that as we discuss what's happened, what's become apparent over the six years from when I, I first uh, – uh, launched this concept of the three-player game between mm-hmm. the mission-driven state, financial speculators, and the market economy. Uh, the, what we're talking about now, this history of the role of the U.S. government in uh, initiating and supporting and fostering uh, the digital revolution, represented a kind of uh, really remarkably constructive configuration of that game. And, of course, that became clear uh, and, and, and to the uh, enormous benefit of those who had been the early practitioners during the great uh, dot-com internet bubble, financial bubble, at the end of the 1990s, at the end of the 20th century, when all of a sudden those investors looking for the kind of discontinuity and disruption that creates the potential for super profits realized that what was going on in the world of computing had the potential, uh, and they were right, it just took a little longer, to create literally a new economy with new sources of value, uh, quite different and distinct from what was running out of steam by the 1970s. Um, So that constructive collaboration where government, if you like, uh, funded upstream the trial and error process of discovering the uh, ability to turn lab science into working technology, and then the financial markets amplified and accelerated the commercial deployment of all this new stuff. That configuration was what motivated my original view of, of this potential very constructive collaboration, and it's a view that I, I, I'm i not unique in holding, of course. Uh, perhaps in Britain, Mariana Mazzucato is best known, um, and she and I have a very active, continuing conversation mm-hmm. uh, on this subject. Um, but, of course, when I thought of the three-player game as a kind of working metaphor for the context in which my life as a venture capitalist had evolved, um, I realized that there was a that metaphor related to what the physicists called the three body problem, <laughs> trying to calculate the paths of three planets gravitationally interacting with each other. And the answer that they have always had is that there are an infinite number of configurations, none of which represent a stable equilibrium. And so in this world of political and financial economics has also been the case. And that's where I think we, we, we will get to when we are talking about how the state has been delegitimized in the Anglo-American world, at least, mm-hmm. uh, as an economic actor and how uh, we have, particularly in the United States, turned our backs on and ignored the lessons available from this current economic transformation and have instead abdicated from any positive role in the next needed technological revolution, the green clean revolution, Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. uh, where where the U.S. is 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 not is not even a participant at the national level. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I think that's where this conversation will wind up going. It will, it will, it will definitely uh, get there, and we will also talk about uh, about how China approaches approaches things. I, I'm curious about this uh, this idea. I think Mariana Matsukato suggests that you know the state is is the investor of first resort. Is I think is, is a close to, to her phrase when it comes to raw R and D. And you described how uh, you know venture capitalists and entrepreneurs come in and amplify uh, that that research, and that's certainly what we saw with. Uh, lots of the kind of core DARPA research, the Internet, as you say, being a great example. And there are various things in um, solid state uh, that came out of the you know, UK programs uh, in the 60s and the 70s. Um, but then I'm, I'm kind of curious about the distributional aspects of the rewards that come out of the, the, this kindling that has been provided uh, by the by the state. Uh, I mean, what we've typically done is uh, we've provided, uh, certainly in the UK, Tremendous tax breaks for these entrepreneurs um, and for the investors who to pay, uh, you know, kind of carried interest, um, capital gain in, uh, rates of tax rather than income tax. And I'm sure, you, you know, you as a venture capitalist were um, in, uh, under sort of a similar r- regime. Uh, I'm curious about what the, con- the agreement was that said having enabled these core technologies such that they could be amplified and having provided the institutional frameworks of, uh, you know, a legal system and intellectual property law and mechanisms for arbitration and just physical security and a sort of a central bank. And um, we, we then think that there should be sort of tax breaks and, you know, positive treatment in that direction towards the people taking what are now much more limited risks because of the institutional framework that's been provided around the kindling. I mean, you're, you're, you're at the, you know, you're at the end of a 40-year career in this. When you look back on that, um, what, what do you what do you think? I, the, the, the phrase that comes into my, my mind is from Jerry Cohen, the old philosopher who had that that great essay, which is, "If you're an egalitarian, how can you say rich?" Um, and, and I just wonder about how we should be thinking about that dimension. Well, first of all, I'm I'm addicted to taking uh, the kind of phenomena that we're observing in real time and working to put it into a deeper historical context. Mm -hmm. This is not the first time, that is the digital revolution, it's not the first time that the state, and in particular the American state, but also others, have provided the kind of upstream support for the trial and error process of innovation at the frontier, where uh, there will always be failures, more failures than successes, and the pattern of success and the sources of success are fundamentally unpredictable in advance. Uh, in Britain, uh, there's actually some really good new research on the extent of government participation in the railway manias of the 1830s and 40s that transformed the British economy. In the U.S., the, uh, the Erie Canal which made New York the world's commercial and financial center with something of a lag, was financed by bonds guaranteed by the state of New York. Uh, um, and then on through the whole process of electrification, where the ability to uh, earn a private return from uh, the provision of this basic fundamental transformational technology dependent on state granting of monopoly privileges uh, to private uh, uh, private profit-seeking companies, even while there was an enormous political war over versus public power, uh, where only with the uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority in the U.S. was a mm-hmm. national program uh, to bring the benefits of electricity to populations that the private sector had no interest in serving. So there's a long history here, um, and when we think about the pattern of exploitation of government support by individual capitalists, um, that history, of course, includes the the railway titans of the 19th century, uh, one of whom uh, happened to be named Leland Stanford, uh, mm-hmm. and provided some public return 
to the private gain he made in good part because of state subsidies in the form of land grants from the federal government. I am sympathetic to the notion of uh, some kind of direct financial feedback from the unpredictable successes. And by the way, this, of course, would apply as much in the world of biomedicine, biotechnology, where state funding of of fundamental research uh, unpredictably uh, has produced uh, enormous positive returns. But there is two things here that I think need to be taken into account. Uh, One is, again, terrific uh, academic research on this, um, uh, much of it led by uh, a British economist at Stanford named Nick Bloom, who also I'm delighted to say is a Cambridge University graduate. The, The social returns from the private gains from investment and innovation dwarf the private returns. Bloom and his team's estimate is as much as three to four times as much is gained through the spillovers of knowledge and technology uh, and technologies to others uh, and that are not captured by the private profits uh, that are earned. But second, I think that right now, more effort should be going into the forward-looking need for state investment, state support, and by the way, not through national champions, but through the kind of open intellectual property and competitive environment that the U.S. Defense Department sponsored in the 1950s and 60s, uh, in direct contrast, by the way, with Britain's narrow focus on a small number of national champions. Uh, Blue Stripe and the white heat of technology, for example. Right. Um, And and, and I think that the the really important point here is that when these investments are going to be made, nobody knows who's going to be the winner. Mm -hmm. They are, in a way, lottery tickets. And and, and this is my last point on the subject. Mm -hmm. Back in the 70s, we invented out in Silicon Valley, collectively, venture capitalists as a group, what we called Silicon Valley Socialism. Anyone from, to induce anyone to leave one of the safe, secure, uh, major companies like Hewlett Packard or digital equipment, uh, required the possibility, remote as it might be, of super rewards, lottery tickets. They were actually stock options. And mm. the fact is the vast majority of those lottery tickets, like lottery tickets in the real world, of uh, gambling expire unexercised. The odds against winning are enormous. Uh, the But thanks to um, uh, work from the Harvard Business School and particularly Michael Jensen, the notion of that, that these stock options, these lottery tickets, could serve a different purpose to align executives with their stockholders by making them uh, quasi stockholders, although with only a one way, uh, bet, uh, only, uh, upside return, no downside loss, um, and, and then distributing those options across established businesses where, which, which were not at all in the same context as high tech startups, uh, in Silicon Valley or around the National Institutes of Health. I think that was a terrible, terrible error. And then, of course, when it was extended, even to the institutions whose liabilities were more or less guaranteed by taxpayers, mm. uh, institutions known as banks. Well, we got what we might have expected. Uh, we got enormous risk-taking uh, that went with enormous shortening of the time horizons of the investors, and the executives and the investors were, unfortunately, far too well aligned. Uh, but that is a history that, uh, does not contradict the notion that to induce the kind of extreme risk-taking necessary at the frontier goes with providing exceptional rewards for success. So, so if... Uh, <laughs> oh, by the way, and those rewards should be very, very well taxed. The, the history of the last 15 years or the last two Republican administrations in 
aggressively moving to redistribute income from the poor to the rich by way of tax cuts is one of the most destructive examples right. of what I call the dark side of the three-player game that has emerged so visibly in the last five years. Hey, it's Azim. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to my conversation with Bill Janeway. In the previous episode, I spoke to Chinese entrepreneur and investor Kai-Fu Lee about the Chinese approach to artificial intelligence. I really recommend it. And if you like my work, please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. The best way to stay on top of the new weekly episode is to hit subscribe. Thank you. Actually, I think where you've where, where you got us to is this idea that in the, the three-player game, there are times in the three-body problem where a system goes out, uh, goes out of its dynamic equilibrium and is unstable. And it feels like we're, we're getting there, uh, right, right now, where, whether it is this idea of a, a two-speed, uh, economy that we seem to see in the US and in, in, in the UK, where, with cosmopolitan, metropolitan urban centers doing well and other parts of the, those nations not doing so well, uh, or we start to see, um, things that to a, consumer who's watching look like dominant market power uh, the regulators don't fit the the model of dominant market power the data monopolies in the, the form of the, the, the facebook and, and and google and so on um, and, and we also then see perhaps as a symptom a growing rise in uh in in populism uh in lots of different uh, uh countries uh, are these things are these things connected unequivocally? And let me just say the good news about the three player game is that there is no stable equilibrium anywhere, including the one we're in now. So let me just make two points about this. First, historically, again, go back 120 years at the end of the 19th century in the Gilded Age, with the mm-hmm. enormous power of the John D. Rockefellers and the J.P. Morgans and the Andrew Carnegie's on the dominance in this, in the, from the second industrial revolution of this phenomenal wealth, uh, untaxed, by the way, uh, income taxes in the U.S. were unconstitutional until a constitutional amendment was passed. But that constitutional amendment was a centerpiece of the political, the progressive political response as the game shifted again against those uh, malefactors of great wealth as the Republican president, Theodore Roosevelt, identified them. So I would not give up hope today that we're stuck inevitably in this, our version of this uh, dark configuration of the three-player game. But the dynamics of where we are right now and the spillover from the impact of the digital revolution on the market economy back into the political process, the way I would... I would describe it as very simply this. Over the last five, six years, since the global financial crisis and the Great Recession, through the recovery period, what we've seen is that the digital revolution no longer needs any support or subsidy from government, from the state. On the contrary, it's matured to the point where it is attacking the authority of the state at multiple levels and along multiple dimensions, and even undermining the integrity of the political process on which ultimately the authority of the state rests. The American state in particular, but I think this is also pretty clearly the case in Britain, has proved itself incapable of buffering its constituents against the economic consequences of the digital revolution, which radically reduced friction in the movement of goods and services and people and capital, contributing mightily to the global financial crisis and to the surge of populist rage at the establishments that were benefiting on the one hand and refusing to use the power available to them to distribute those benefits more broadly and to provide uh, transitional support for those who are the victims of the digital revolution. That I see as the driving force of mm-hmm. what has shifted the terms of this three-player game into this, this, thank heavens, unstable, 
but extremely frustrating and dangerous configuration that we now find ourselves in. But, you know, Bill, I'm curious about, I'm curious about that, that causality. Um, I definitely see that we have a, a large, uh, a, a small number of very large, powerful uh, digital uh, companies, uh, the, you know, the gaffers, for sake of argument, and Netflix uh, in the US. Um, I also see that the role that uh, Facebook uh, and Twitter may have played in uh, the spread of, uh, you know, agitative uh, propaganda and, 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 and so on, although it's still a little bit early for the social scientists to come back out and say we actually can find a chain of causality to how election outcomes may, may have been, been, been affected. Um, but I, I, I also see, though, that these technology companies have, in general, resulted in the driving down of prices, whether it's Amazon driving down retail prices for products uh, or, uh, you know, Netflix making uh, content available more cheaply than the traditionals, the, the, the Barnes and Nobles and, uh, uh, you know, the blockbusters. And, and so, and when I look at what has risen in price in the U.S. over the last 30 years, it's not been computers or, or books. It's been healthcare and, and education in, in particular. And then if you look at what really hammered people's living standards from, again, from my reading of, of the data, um, it was not the, the bursting of the dot-com bubble uh, back in 2000, 2001. It was the global financial crisis uh, and the uh, the asset deflation, the, lock, the time locking up of the credit markets, and then certainly in the UK, the move towards austerity in some sense to finance the misdeeds of uh, risk-taking uh, bankers rather than software developers. Uh, so, so I, I'm just curious about where, how we connect those two. I mean, how do because you, uh, you seem to connect connect them together, and I, I maybe see that they're but they're all happening, but don't see the direct connection. Well, first of all, the the first impact of information technology of digital technologies on the distribution, and it's your term, you know, that we need to focus on. I agree completely. The distributional consequences. Hmm. of the technological transformations. The first was on engendering the second great globalization. You know, in, in 1900, as the first great globalization enabled by the technologies of the steamship, the railways, the telegraph, and the telephone, as that took place, uh, world trade as a share of total GDP, total world GDP, reached around 30%, unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This time, in 2007, it reached 70%, mm-hmm. 70% of world GDP. Um, second, the whole phenomenon of outsourcing, the opening up of the economies of the developed world to the billions of people who now had access directly or indirectly, whether writing software in India or assembling Apple phones in China, was a transformational impact on labor markets whose consequences can be tracked out long before the global financial crisis. In the U.S., the 80%, the lower 80%, ceased to see any increase in real wages, uh, even while productivity continued to grow, uh, beginning roughly in 1980 or a little before. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Great economic historian Peter Temin, in his uh, most recent book, uh, amazingly, uh, and to me with a personal impact, invokes the the two-sector theory of economic development associated with the great economist Sir Arthur Lewis, uh, the first uh, person of color to win the Nobel Prize in economics, uh, whose course I actually took at Princeton on exactly and- this topic. And who was my, my father's uh, supervisor in the 1950s. Well, there you go. <laughs> he was When he was at uh, LSE or Manchester. Manchester, Manchester, yeah. And, and he came to Princeton in time uh, in the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, the notion that, that, that Lewis's uh, theoretical analysis based on real experience in Ghana of economic development 
in in the poorest of the poor countries would be relevant to understanding the dynamics of the American economy is pretty shocking. But so, so my point here is that um, indeed, by the time of the global financial crisis, uh, the U.S. economy and to some material extent the British economy as well had seen a decoupling of the sharing of the benefit of the of the wealth produced through growing productivity even before the global financial crisis, and that was in turn substantially a function of the way that the digital technologies enabled the second great globalization. Uh, it went with, in both countries, it went with the triumph of the Mount Pelerin Society, the Libertarian, uh, through the, the Reagan and Thatcher administration, mm-hmm. uh, with the combination of reducing taxation and reducing regulation on the grounds that the markets on their own uh, would deliver uh, stable, beneficial outcomes. Uh, and this indeed was formalized in the rational expectations hypothesis that I denounced vigorously uh, in my book and which I think were was substantially discredited indeed by the global financial crisis. Uh, and the Great Recession. So the political consequences cumulatively uh, built up. And then I couldn't agree with you more. The notion that those directly responsible for the uh, for, for the global financial crisis. So you've level set us, Bill, uh, as to, to where you, you think we are, which is uh, that we have this uh, kind of key issue about uh, distribution that is uh, challenging uh, the effectiveness of, of, of democracies that are there. They themselves are under the, um, the, the, the threat of some of these information monopolies. And one other thing that you've spoken about is the importance of uh, what you call the next green economy. So, so given this level setting, what do you think uh, the three-player game needs to look like uh, and deliver uh, in order to move us to a higher energy level uh, and a more sustainable one? Well, first, uh, like it or not, this does still need to be looked at at a, at a national level, not a global level, uh, or even perhaps a super regional level, given the strains and stresses now underway in Europe. But I, I want to begin this by saying we should really take seriously the historical fact that the coexistence of representative democracy and market capitalism is relatively very recent and obviously fragile. In, in the 1930s, it came under extreme stress and broke down during the Great Depression in crucially important uh, nations of the world. Of course, Germany being the most the most uh, extreme, uh, with most extreme consequences. But even in the U.S. Uh, it came under extreme stress at both state and national level. Um, today it is under extreme stress again. Uh, representative democracy as the kind of institutional response to the emergence of modern market capitalism uh, with increasing concentration of wealth uh, and, cap- and, and capital-intensive industries uh, as um, Thomas Piketty's great work, of course, documents um, that only emerged in the U.S. around the 1820s and, of mm. course, in Britain in the second half of the 19th century and on the continent even more recently than that. Um, so I don't think we should take for granted that this institutional setup uh, has a permanent life. And, of course, we see in China's challenge, not just uh, an economic challenge, um, and not just a technological and scientific one, real and substantial as those are, but also a, an institutional challenge, what I call the three-player game with Chinese characteristics, in which uh, perhaps as an alternative, somewhat consciously, somewhat unconsciously, the apparatus that we, vid- we, we view through the Orwellian lens 
the apparatus of surveillance uh, not only is available to repress and punish those who create unrest in response to their circumstances, but potentially, and in some cases it would appear uh, evidently, uh, as, as instruments for finding out what's generating their unrest and doing something about it before it spills over so substantially to threaten the legitimacy of the regime. Uh, it certainly is not given that China will succeed, as it clearly intends to attempt to do, succeed the United States as the leader of the innovation economy and a major uh, global player across all of the uh, spectrum of political, economic, financial, uh, uh, institutional relationships. Uh, but it certainly has an option to do so. And it's clearly by its massive investments, both to complete its uh, process of catching up with the West uh, in the existing technologies, but even pushing forward at least co-equally in such areas as machine learning uh, and quantum computing, um, it is certainly asserting uh, a challenge that we, I think, goes far beyond just the narrow question of trade balances or even intellectual property theft. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one, one of the uh, lessons from history that was uh, examined by the greatest unrecognized economist of the 19th century, Frederick List, the German uh, economist of national economic development, was that every follower nation begins by appropriating the intellectual property that it can get its hands on. Absolutely. And the Chinese, we did it, we did it to Britain with the, in the textile industry and the Japanese and Koreans returned the, the favor to us. Uh, Chinese have done it in a more organized, uh, and perhaps, uh, prioritized way even more than the Japanese did. But now they're reaching the frontier. Mm-hmm. I think we're to see that China begins to enforce uh, uh, patent and copyright laws rather more substantially when its its own uh, nationals are at the frontier, just as the U.S. did in the 19th century uh, with respect to copyright when we've got authors as popular as Mark Twain um, and um, uh, who took over from Charles Dickens, whose That's works right. were pirated mercilessly in the United States. They, they were, they were indeed. And I just, I wonder about, uh, about whether the, the fact that we've, we've spent much of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century living under the shadow of the neoclassical synthesis and its particular view on the state, that it's created a, a sort of strategic blindness when we assess or, and has to have in recent historical times assessed what is possible under what you might call the Chinese uh, uh, innovation consensus, uh, because what, what stri- strikes me about what China is able to do in this area is uh, it's able to coordinate the the large scale technology platforms uh, through soft and hard direction. Uh, it, it's able to um, be a, a little bit less squeamish about the the rights of the individual, which provides it a, a data advantage, and it can coordinate uh, municipal and state and government level uh, in, in investment in a way that actually has probably been that they they can do better than many other many other states. Uh, and, and I wonder whether we will look back in 10 or 15 years and realize that there was a completely different way to play the three-player game, which comes to the cost to, to sort of certain things that are enshrined in our, you know, J.S. Mill, uh, Thomas Paine-inspired um, political philosophies. Uh, but, I, you know, I, had, I have a couple of relatives over from Pakistan at the moment, and they tell me that as you walk around the streets of Islamabad, you regularly see Chinese uh, business execs who have perfect Urdu or Punjabi as they pay with the CPAC uh, relationship. And, and, and so the, the, it's, 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 it's potentially be played 
in a different way, and that might be what's unfolding here. Well, that's exactly what I've set out. Uh, as I say, what I call the, the, the three-player game with Chinese characteristics. It, it, it is not given uh, that the uh, within that enormous uh, populous and highly diverse society, much more diverse than we recognize, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, top-down control, even with the ability to deploy all of these uh, digital technologies operating in real time, uh, will produce a coherent, stable, uh, successful outcome. But I think two, two things are the case. First of all, uh, I do want to go back and insist that certainly in the Western world and even in the Chinese world, uh, the notion of a politically legitimizing mission, not just correcting market failure in the spirit of the welfare economics and the work of the great uh, Professor Arthur Perdue of Cambridge, uh, that that's not enough, that the politically legitimizing mission, historically national development, national security, uh, has is necessary to generate uh, consent, sufficient consensus to overcome the distributional conflicts that are necessarily generated by economic development and growth. Um, In the West, we did, by and large, not entirely, lose something of that concept of a politically legitimizing mission. But I do have to call out that in 1972, Mm -hmm. uh, we can date, in effect, the sources of the biotechnology revolution through Richard Nixon's declaration of war on cancer. Now, that war has been going on for 45 years with occasional limited, somewhat haphazard success. But by invoking the language of war, what Nixon was saying is prospective cost-benefit analysis will not constrain or limit investments in the necessary, highly uncertain process of trial and error and error. Because it's a war that has the potential to benefit all, again, it overrides a distributional conflict over who gets the money, who captures the rents mm. from that government investment. You know, it's funny you describe that process because I've been thinking a little bit about quantum computing for the past uh, few weeks. And the thing that surprises me is that Quantum computing, if we can get it to work, can bring uh, trillions, quadrillions fold improvement to computation. And we can start to solve all sorts of problems we can't even imagine today. So it could have that effect of raising um, all boats everywhere. And then when you look at the scale of investment in quantum computing right now, it's, it's, it's quite small. I mean, there's a handful of companies, IBM and Microsoft and some startups in total, they've got fewer than a couple of thousand people working in this area. And so companies have made relatively small investments. Venture capitalists have made small investments because they can't see a payback in less than 10 years. And this seems to be exactly the kind of place where the third player in your your three-player game, the mission-driven state, should be standing up and saying the social benefits of getting this working are so enormous we need to step in because otherwise it's in no one's interest short term to develop this. And what do you think about that? You you are right as rain and in fact uh, to illustrate graphically that we're on the same page, if you were to hold up the jacket of the first edition of my book, you would see an icon It's a generic smartphone, very carefully designed by the uh, Cambridge University Press not to look exactly like an Apple iPhone, since we certainly did not want to uh, disturb that not that that very restless giant. Uh, But it was a generic smartphone designed in the United States, whether in the iPhone or the Android version. Um, Then the new edition also has an icon. It could not be more different. It's a photograph, uh, or a, a, rather a designer's 
image of the Chinese satellite that demonstrated quantum communications through entangled photons over 3,000 kilometers, demonstrating that at least in this domain, China was already at the frontier. And as you say, a frontier of exploring the technological consequences of science that require absolutely uh, underwriting at scale by, mm. by government. I have to say that important as I think quantum computing can be, to me, the failure that is most frustrating is the failure to provide the equivalent scale of support for the needed energy-related technologies, particularly energy storage technologies, to enable uh, the Green Revolution. And and here, um, uh, China is also deeply engaged uh, with state funding uh, and support of private uh, research and innovation, and the U.S. to a much, much, much lesser extent. Uh, I always like to call out that the, the budget of DARPA, even today, remains $3 billion a year. The budget of the ARPA Energy uh, Initiative in the Department of Energy that Trump wants to close down has never reached as much as $300 million, uh, mm-hmm. less than a tenth of mm-hmm. DARPA's budget. Yeah, it's it, it's a misplaced a priority, which I think I can only uh, you can only write down to vested interests uh, who want to maintain the value of carbon assets. I think that there's a lot, a great deal to do that, as well as the the overall rejection of the positive economic role for the state. But but as before we conclude, I would like to. Um, add a kind of coda to this conversation, mm-hmm. as, as I did to my book, because the the fellow who hired me, John Bogelstein, who hired me at Warburg Pinkers 30 years ago, used to say that you can't survive as a venture capitalist if you're a pessimist. And temperamentally, I am an optimist, and I can find one domain where optimism, I think, is mandated. Mm-hmm. Um, long-term, positive consequences, and that is in the domain of ideas, and it's particularly the manner in which it's now apparent that the global financial crisis was, for the disciplines of economics and finance, the academic disciplines, the gift that keeps on giving, and the constructive, creative response across a very broad range of economic research, both empirical and theoretical, to the global financial crisis and the consequent Great Recession, offers the possibility, looking forward, of redefining the context in which the kind of public policy issues we've been discussing will be debated in the future for the very great benefit of us all. That's my optimistic coda. Well, like you, Bill, I'm an, I'm an optimist. I think it's very hard to maintain a, a, an ongoing level of pessimism. It would make you a very miserable person. Uh, <laughs> uh, just as a last final question to you, you've been a fantastic uh, guest. Uh, if I'm going to bring somebody else on, whether it's a, an amazing founder or an academic, anyone from any other domain onto this podcast, who would be your number one recommendation? Well, you know, right now, I actually think it would be the new Bennett Professor of Public Policy at the University of, of Cambridge, Diane Coyle. Uh, Diane is a student of the digital economy. She's contributing uh, powerfully to the attempt to understand, to take apart and analyze what we haven't discussed directly, the productivity puzzle, uh, all of this digital technology in the context of very slow uh, recorded uh, statistical growth and productivity, but she also has a, a very broad-ranging uh, interest. I would strongly recommend uh, Diane Coyle as a guest uh, um, uh, for you, Azim. I'll absolutely chat to Diane. She's been a long-term reader of, uh, of Exponential View uh, herself and actually edited one of the, the issues uh, a few months ago when I was on vacation for me. So I'll drop her an email. Thank you very much, Bill. 
Thanks for sharing the past hour with me and Bill. If you have any questions or thoughts you'd like to share about our conversation, tweet at Azim and at Bill Janeway, or follow me on my newsletter from www.exponentialview.co. And as always, rate, review and recommend the podcast to your friends. I look forward to hearing from you. Oh, my God.